Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Whether it's newly built or been in your family for generations, your home is, well, it's your home. It's where life happens, where you nurture your family and where your friends come to call. On this week's Louisiana Eats, we've got lots of friends who have come a-calling with advice on how to make your home the spot where everyone wants to be. We begin with Bo Cialino and Matt Armado. You may know them from their wildly popular lifestyle blog, Probably This. With a love of DIY projects, the couple has spent years transforming spaces without breaking the bank. They've collected all that good advice together in their new book, Housewarming. And when it comes to that housewarming party, you must call in Brian Tice. His cookbook, inspired by cookbooks from the atomic age, is filled with delicious, kitschy dishes themed for every occasion. Finally, we tour the Williams Residence, a mid-century house museum where lavish dinner parties were held three nights a week. We're warming hearts and homes on this week's Louisiana Eats. I'm Bo Cialino. And I'm Matt Armato. And we run the blog Probably This and are the authors of the book Housewarming. Bo Cialino and Matt Armato are the ultimate design and DIY power couple. From a college romance to exotic travels, the creative pair have always had a flair for living, something that's been reflected in every place they've called home. Their shared history in restaurant work, along with penchant for design, inspired them to start their lifestyle blog, Probably This, which became a social media powerhouse and inspired their new book, Housewarming, a guide to creating a home you adore. Bo and Matt joined us in our studio to share their story. We met at Loyola um, here in town. We're both born and raised here. And we met at Loyola. Bo was working for ISAC, which is a student-run organization. And I went over to get more information about going abroad uh, or more information about Bo, I guess, really. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Then we started dating and and actually went abroad together to Vietnam for like three months. We had only been together for a few weeks. So that was a real sink or swim moment. We, we sank and then we swam. It went well. <laughs> We're, that was nine years ago, so we've been together a while. You all, you know, typical New Orleans life. You've spent a lot of time working in restaurants. Definitely. So I had the pleasure of working at Ivy, which was Gotro's sister restaurant years ago. And the whole point of the restaurant was to create kind of this, like, 
casual but still fine experience for customers and we had really fun music and nothing was taken too seriously but the food was still incredible and so was the service and that kind of gave me inspiration for how I wanted to treat guests in our own home where it would still be casual and fun but you were going to get some really good food and some really great cocktails. And then I worked at a lot of places before I got a job uh, with the LeBlanc and Smith group at Sylvain. Uh, I also worked at the now closed Mo Bar. That's where I got trained in bartending. We actually had dinner last night at the Chloe, which is theirs oh, as well. Yes, and it was yes. fantastic. But they, that restaurant group really knows how to nail an experience. And some of that rubbed off on you. Yes, absolutely. It really kind of like made us want to uh, create atmospheres and welcome people into our homes and kind of experiment with how to make the home like a more fun, like the, to make the home feel like a destination. Bo and Matt's design aspirations first began in what they described as a sterile North Shore cookie cutter apartment. You know the type, where every unit in the building is just like every other unit in the building. That was, I feel like, one of our our greatest accomplishments was turning that cookie cutter brand new apartment into a home that felt so fun and felt so us. And this this book is all about really creating a space that reflects your personality and your individuality and your values. And so I was really proud how we were able to take that sterile, empty apartment with um, those kind of ugly floors and uh, really layer it with, with our taste. And then, of course, you all, good New Orleans boys, found a perfect pink shotgun. I mean, why not? <laughs> yes, that was... Um, I mean, that was immediately we wanted to move into that place as soon as we saw it. We just loved the color of that place. And uh, that was one of the first places Well, we were renting it. It was one of the first places that we really started to kind of like flex our design muscle. Our landlord was very um, lenient with what she allowed us to do with this space. So we painted and repainted almost every room in that house and you know, really kind of made it ours. I think in the book we say, you know, it's true. When you live in a place that is painted like bubblegum pink on the outside, it almost feels stupid to not have the inside match that intensity. You don't even to walk into that home and be like bored, you know? Right. So it kind of encouraged us to really punch up the interior. And it's kind of stuck with us ever since. After rehabbing that bubblegum pink shotgun, Matt and Bo found a new project a 1969 Vintage Globe Star Camper they christened Rosie. She needed a lot of work, but they rose to the challenge and turned Rosie into a proper home. Rosie was a whole chapter in the book, but also a whole chapter of our lives that I feel like had a distinct starting date and a distinct ending date because we got Rosie in the summer of, I think, 2017, right? Yes, while we were living at that pink shotgun. (laughs) And we spent three months really teaching ourselves how to DIY our way through this camper. So when Rosie was all ready, what did you do? Well, we hightailed it out of New Orleans and spent three months on the road, which it's still not the most luxurious thing to like kind of take your toiletries bag and tote it across the camping park to the shared bathroom um, every day for three months. (laughs) (laughs) And when we were done, we loved it so much and we're sharing photos on our blog and it kind of took off online and and it hopefully inspired a lot of folks, but we we had never really had a place to 
lay out our entire process and really be like, no, this is actually the trouble that we had to go through and what you have to do and how much it costs. And so in the book, we really wanted to give any folks who had seen us and that project kind of like the real rundown, the nitty gritty of what you're going to experience, the chaos of the Facebook groups you're going to have to join (laughs) and all of that. So what are you hoping will come of housewarming? You know, we hope, and kind of the book's whole thesis is that you don't need a ton of time or a ton of money or to own your home even to make it feel like yourself and ready to welcome the folks that you love being with in it. So our goal with this book is just to help anyone, regardless of their living situation or their finances, create homes that reflect themselves and create homes that they feel comfortable having their favorite folks in it for a meal or a drink or just a glass of wine. Well, I love the way you advise people. It's almost like embrace the clutter. <laughs> yeah, so I, <laughs> our biggest thing with design is not making it look too sterile. We want places to feel warm and cozy and inviting. And um, what we always say is, like, I want someone to, if they spill wine on my couch, not freak out. I mean, I don't want them to spill wine on my couch, but if they did, I wouldn't want them to have, you know, a heart attack over it. Um, And I think that you can suggest that with your design by having it have an intentional sort of clutter. Um, Sometimes we call it, like, grandma chic, um, just to make it look like a place where you've collected items over a lifetime. And it's a place that has, in that time, become a home. I loved the way you all said, a cute pair of salt and pepper shakers go a long way towards saying, I am a very happy and successful homemaker. Thank you. (laughs) You know, we found the most amazing local uh, Etsy shop with this person based in Lafayette who collects vintage pieces and a lot of salt and pepper shakers and puts them on Etsy. And we just started buying all of them because we were like, these are nuts. They're, you know, people had fun in the 50s and 60s and 70s with with all kinds of stuff. So we have our martini and aspirin salt and pepper shakers. We have our sunbathers, this man and woman salt and pepper shakers. And it's just such a fun way to add that kind of carefree charm to a table or on a shelf. And it doesn't have to be salt and pepper shakers. Really, I think kind of the idea is about, you know, just like those small details that you might not think of, like um, giving attention to your salt and pepper shakers when you're having, say, like a tropical-themed party. Like maybe that calls for a new pair of vintage salt and pepper shakers. It's not going to set you back that far, and it'll really kind of just like put the cherry on top of the tablescape. Yeah, so I think that tablescaping can seem... Um, folks can hear that word and they think of a table setting or a really ornate centerpiece or things like that. And sometimes it can imply a really fancy event, right? But it doesn't need to. And our kind of idea of tablescaping is that it can be done on a really small scale um, or a really large scale, but for any kind of event, whether it's casual or not, just putting intention into how you're creating the spread that your guests will sit down to or that you and your partner or kids will sit down to. It can be done for any kind of occasion. What a 
about that snack board. Tell us about designing a uh, snack board. What's the trick? How do you do it? Two things you don't want to happen with a snack board is for it to be untouched, and you don't want it to end up being too touched. So <laughs> you don't want it to end up looking like a you know hodgepodge mishmash of stuff. So we introduced the idea in the book of kind of layering a snack board, and we talk about how you want to have a lot of varying and contrasting textures and flavors and even visually colors and things like that. But you also can set items apart, like a really messy cheese might belong better on a small marble you know, tray or something on top of the snack board. Adding height um, with tiny little cake stands is really great. Um, and also encouraging folks to dig in. One of our favorite things to do is we make a snack board. We have the first few bites before anyone gets there. So it looks like it's been cut into. And then folks will immediately feel comfortable kind of taking their their share. We have a, of the first few bites after taking a picture, of course. <laughs> Tell me about the influence that you all know you've had on people in their homes, and how have you changed people's lives? Yeah, well, um, I, I feel so conceited saying that I've had an influence on people's lives, but I, I guess we have. Um, and people will message us sometimes and say things like, oh, I'm so excited that, you know, you've post about, posted about doing these DIYs and these recipes. And uh, I didn't think that, like, I had it in me or I didn't think that I knew how to do it. But you make it so, like, you know, make it sound and look so easy, which... I don't think that we are masters of really much of what we put in the book. We say in the book, we kind of own up to it. We are self-taught jacks of all trades. We are not like expert mixologists. We are not like master level interior designers. We just have taught ourselves how to do a lot of home skills. And so I think that what we really offer is a more approachable perspective for people who are maybe just starting out um, or uh, don't know where to start. You know, and one thing with a lot of books in this space that are great books in the, you know, the homemaking and home design space um, is that sometimes they can be a bit more inspirational and aspirational, which is fantastic and pretty to look at. But we really wanted a book that was attainable, that would offer you the pretty photo, but it wouldn't be anything that would, you know, be impossible for your average person to do. We want, like, again, for everyone to be able to do these projects and to do these you know, recipes, of course, and to take our design inspiration and put them into their homes, regardless of whether it's a bedroom in their parents' house, which is a reality for a lot of folks, or, you know, a studio apartment, or if they own their home. So that was really important for us. Well, I think y'all just knocked it out of the park. And thank you so much for making the world just a little bit more of a beautiful place, because y'all are rocking it. Thank you. Thank you, Thank so, you much, so much, Poppy. Thank you so much, It's been a pleasure. <laughs> that was Bo Cialino and Matt Armato, founders of the blog Probably This and authors of the beautiful new book Housewarming, a guide to creating a home you adore. Bo and Matt are currently on a Southern book tour with stops in Atlanta, Raleigh, Richmond, and Nashville before returning to New Orleans for a Poppy's Pop-Up Drag Brunch at Tujac's Restaurant on August 28th. You'll find all the details at probablythis.com. 
Coming up next, we meet Brian Tice, whose book, The Infinite Feast, is a guide to hosting parties and a love letter to cookbooks from the atomic age. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand. Beans done right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Now inviting you to become a member of the Camellia Brand crew with their new box subscription program. Shipped quarterly to your door with up to 10 surprise ingredients inside, it's like having a Mardi Gras parade through your kitchen all year long. To learn how to become a member of the Camellia Brand crew, visit CamelliaBrand.com. Support also comes from Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways. Rouse's Markets, tastes like home. And from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. I am Brian Tice, and I'm the author of The Infinite Feast, How to Host the Ones You Love, Recipes from the Big Easy and Beyond. Brian Tice is a home cooking maestro with a passion for 20th century culinary history. His book, The Infinite Feast, is bursting with recipes, colorful photographs, and entertainment tips. And it includes interviews with celebrity chefs and restaurateurs like Philip Lopez and Joanne Clevenger. Quite an ambitious project for the first-time cookbook author and one years in the making. As Brian explained, The Infinite Feast is a nod to the extravagant cookbooks of the atomic age, the kinds he fell in love with long before he got into publishing. I have always been a foodie at heart. I've been focused on developing recipes for only about 12 years, though. Uh, I was working for quite a while at an investment bank as a business manager or a budget manager. And when I left there, I said, what do I want to do? I said, I want to publish a cookbook. I've got an extensive collection of vintage cookbooks in my own library that I treasure, and they date roughly from 1945 to 1965. And so you can get a sense of the period that I enjoy. And they've always inspired me to rewrite some of the recipes to use healthier ingredients because, of course, that was a, uh, a time when America was using strange, you know, new canned things all the time, et cetera, that had too much salt. And so I try to try to fix those things when I rewrite those recipes. But more than anything else, the charm of that period – is in the 
the themes that uh, they always had and the, the fact that they would try to boil the ocean with their uh, many international types of dishes and holidays all in the same cookbook. And I said, let's see if I can do that, but why don't I organize it in such a way to where it's like a year of recipes. And so I said, that's what I want to do. That's the kind of cookbook I want to make. But in order to do that, I need to be qualified, in, at least in my mind, to tell people how to cook. And so I said, I need an education. So I said, well, where do you do that? What do I do? And I looked, and the biggest name was ICC, uh, which is International Culinary Center in New York, uh, down in Soho. And I said, okay, that looks like the biggest and best one. Uh, Jacques Pepin is on the list of deans, and I like him a lot. So let's go there. And so I did. And I graduated on the dean's list, not to boast, but I was very proud of myself. I uh, put in a hard year's work of, of both that, and I was a recipe tester uh, for my externship. And I said, okay, now I think I'm qualified to write recipes and, and tell people what to do when they're in the kitchen. Uh, and so then I found um, you know, the very nice people at Pelican, and they offered me a deal on the first proposal. So I love them and, and thank them for that. And uh, the rest is history, as they say. It is vintage. It's kitschy. Brian, what is it about that mid-century vibe that just compelled you to write this book in this particular style? Um, I think I think that it owes a lot to, say, a 1961 Better Homes and Gardens holiday cookbook, uh, for example. But at the same time, I think it has a bit of my voice as well. I enjoyed taking it in my own direction and you know, writing uh, things that I don't think you might have read in a, in a book then. So there are some contemporary things going on. But to answer your question, it's just the charm of that period. Everything having to do with the theme menus, uh, which are one of the things that I just like zero in on like a laser when I'm looking at an old cookbook like that. The idea that, that they would give you ideas of what you should serve with other things. You don't see that very often these days, right? Um, what you might do if you had a birthday party for a boy or a, you know, a shower uh, party for a girl, you know, whatever it might be that you just don't have, you know, the imagination at your fingertips and you want some ideas about it, you know. Those kinds of things are certainly in, in books these days, but not with exactly the same amount of innocent sort of charm and enthusiasm that that period uh, has in, it, in, in terms of the publications they were doing then. Well, I can definitely assure you that your voice did make it through every <laughs> single part of this book. Thank I, you. Reading the book, I really felt like I got to know you. And what an unbelievably interesting character you are. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you come up with some suggestions for things that I'm really like, well, that's very clever, Brian. Like that planting party. What, what would you prepare for them out of your book if you were having a planting party? Well, probably the Garden of Eden uh, vegetable soup, I think, to start, right? <laughs> Wouldn't that be appropriate? That's perfect. <laughs> and, and what about for a hobby party? For a hobby party? Um, well, it depends on the hobby, right? Wouldn't you take, uh, take your cue from that? Say you were building model boats, you could serve Captain Nemo's crab dip, you know? I mean... <laughs> I'm just brainstorming here. I really loved your international 
cookies, the cookies of many lands. What are some of the more um, obscure cookie recipes that you love? Well, I think the ones that are the most obscure are probably the non-Gerdouise, uh, which is not a pronunciation that I feel fully confident of, but they are the Persian walnut cookies. And they, they're wonderful because they're sort of like this very healthy, light, delicious biscuit almost. Uh, they're not a, a sweet cookie at all. However, I must say that my chocolate chip champion chubbies um, are extremely popular. But this is America, after all, and that's the American cookie. Uh, people go wild for those and scream for the for the free recipe all over the internet. I have a problem actually with my social media director doesn't know how to keep track of these people that are threatening me for not getting the free recipe. So, <laughs> it's, like, it's like, well, you need to buy the book, but you hate to say that, you know, on the, on the internet sometimes. So, Well, you also include so many useful tips. I didn't know about the onion in the freezer trick to keep it yeah. from crying. Yeah. How'd you figure that out? <laughs> um, I, well, the, you learn things along the way. I can't tell you where I learned every trick. Like, I'd love to try to remember where I learned, you know, putting marshmallows in the brown sugar box would help keep your brown sugar soft. I couldn't tell you who taught me that. Um, I do know where I learned how to cut up a bell pepper, though. Um, that's one, one thing I can think of. A wonderful chef at a, at a school on the Upper West Side in Manhattan taught me that one time. Um, but, yeah, they just come from everywhere, these tips. I didn't expect to find interviews with people oh, yeah. in your cookbook, but um, you interviewed uh, Gabrielle Corcas and Billy Oliva, one of my favorite chefs from Delmonico's he's, in New he's York. He's a super guy. He's a wonderful guy, and I was just tickled to see interviews. Now, why did you think that was an important thing to I was to probably add? having too many Proseccos on the plane from New York to uh, New Orleans one time, and it just crossed my mind that it would just be a fun way to add insights into the book. I don't know everything, so why not talk to other people who do? And wouldn't it be interesting if I found people that, you know, had high profiles, you know, the executive chef of Galatoire's. Well, wow, that sounds pretty good to me. And so I, I asked Chef Philip, and he was like, sure, I'll do it. Like, oh, wow. Okay, that's great. Let's do it. <laughs> you know, so. Another thing that just flipped my lid, <laughs> you know, I've, I've looked at a lot of books who the author feels the need to add a playlist. That's fairly common these days. Really? Okay. Music to go along with yes. the, the food. But this is the first cookbook I've ever opened that had sheet music in it. Yes. Now, how in the world did you end up with music from Yankee Doodle Boy to Away in a Manger. How did that end up in your cookbook? Well, I there there is a vintage cooking and crafts book for Christmas that I've always loved that I have in my collection. And one of the things they have in there are Christmas carols. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be great to just put sheet music in? Because who doesn't you know want to have music at their dinner party? And I thought, okay, so I can't you know write to the uh, 
you know, rights owners of a bunch of songs that I that are sort of current that I love. So let's find ones that are in the popular domain, which these are public domain, and uh, we'll have somebody in Nashville, which I did. I found a, a great guy uh, write new arrangements so that uh, you know I had the rights to the arrangements, and here they are. It seems like one of the things that you set out to do in this book was to make the whole world just a little bit more swankienda. Yes. What's up with you in the swankienda? <laughs> it's just a word that I've always liked. Uh, it, it was coined by someone at the Houston Chronicle, and it goes way back. And it just kind of says what I wish life could be for everyone, and I think it already is for lots of people. But it's something to focus on when you host the ones you love. You want to uh, make it as swanky as you as you can. And that doesn't mean, you know, diamonds and tiaras. It uh, might mean flowers on the table. You know, do something nice like that. Hang up some uh, some streamers. I mean, you probably have more things in your house to decorate with than you, than you know. And it doesn't have to be Mardi Gras. It could be any day. Uh, hang those things up and... Uh, and you've got a swanky under, right? So. Well, I'll tell you what. I think you made the whole world just a little bit more swanky under with your wonderful new book. So congratulations. Thank you, Poppy. Brian Tice, author of The Infinite Feast, How to Host the Ones You Love, Recipes, from the Big Easy and beyond. How, when, and why did the pineapple become the symbol of hospitality? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor and from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, located 40 minutes north of New Orleans French Quarter along the shores of Lake Pontchartrain. The delicious Tammany taste culinary scene and an abundance of soft adventure attractions are among the many reasons to love the North Shore's charming communities. Find details on upcoming events, itinerary suggestions, and more at louisiananorthshore.com. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. How, when, and why did the pineapple become the symbol of hospitality? 
The pineapple is a native of Brazil, where the Spanish first came across the tropical fruit. The pineapple reminded them of a pine cone, thus the name. They loved pineapple so much, they brought it to the Caribbean, where it quickly flourished. In 1493, Christopher Columbus came across the pineapple on his second voyage to the New World. By then, it had been adopted by the natives as a welcome, with the fruit often displayed at the entrance to a village or a home, where it lent a sweet scent to the air. When Columbus presented that first pineapple to King Ferdinand, it quickly became all the rage, often selling for thousands of dollars each as Europeans tried to propagate them in hothouses. American colonials loved the pineapple so much, you'll see its image reflected in everything from fabrics to architecture. One hundred years later, the Portuguese introduced the juicy fruit to Asia, where it quickly became revered. By 1849, it was the third most cultivated crop in Singapore, where many grew it alongside rubber trees in order to have a cash crop while waiting for the rubber to mature. There, an unusual custom for warming a new house with a pineapple began. It's called pineapple rolling. Before you step into a new home, a pineapple is to be rolled in first from the front door while calling out, what ah, which means to prosper. Where the pineapple stops is believed to be the fortune position in your new home. But don't eat that pineapple. Tradition says it must be left under a tree to symbolize continued prosperity. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. I am Lydia Blackmore. I am the decorative arts curator at the Historic New Orleans Collection. And as part of the decorative arts, I am in charge of the Williams Residence, which is the historic home of Kemper and Leela Williams, the founders of the Historic New Orleans Collection. Since it was first established by General L. Kemper and his wife, Leela Williams, in 1966, the historic New Orleans collection has been dedicated to the preservation of our city's history and culture. At the heart of the HNOC is the Williams Residence, a 19th-century townhouse located in the heart of the French Quarter. From 1946 to 1964, it was the home of Leela and the General, a place where the couple collected art and antiques and hosted lavish dinner parties several times a week. Today, the site operates as a house museum, reflecting mid-century life as the couple had lived it there. Lydia Blackmore is the first decorative arts curator the HNOC has ever had. As she researched life at the residence, Lydia uncovered previously untold tales of the large staff who made the Williams' life of privilege possible. She then developed a focused tour that told the story of these employees. One, 
that has since been incorporated into the HNOC's general tour of the property. We joined Lydia in 2018 for our own tour of the House Museum to learn what she had discovered. She started by giving us some background on how the Williams family acquired the house back in the 30s. So the Williamses purchased this property in the heart of the French Quarter in 1938, right here on Royal Street. During World War II, General Williams was stationed in Georgetown as part of his military duties. But during that time, Leela was working with her architect and designers to turn this French Quarter residence into their mid-century modern home. When the Williamses returned from the war, they made this their primary residence, living here from 1946 to 1964. Um, and it was quite unusual for them to choose to live here in the French Quarter. They were both um, Anglo-American, very wealthy, part of New Orleans society, you know, the type of people you find in the Garden District. Um, and they chose to live here in the French Quarter because they were passionate about preserving the history and architecture of New Orleans. So as part of their mission to share their passion for preservation, they regularly hosted um, entertainment or formal dinners here at their home in the French Quarter. They formally entertained about three times a week while they were in residence. And that's a formal dinner, black tie, evening gown, multiple courses, drinks, of course, beforehand and probably afterwards here in their dining room right off of Royal Street. Normally, the tour of the Williams residence starts in the Williams's living room because we are talking about the Williamses. But since we are talking about the people who worked for the Williamses, we are starting our tour at the back of the house in the kitchen. Lydia, tell us about Lillian and Bernice, the things you know about them, because so often those New Orleans cooks, the ones who were in the back of the house putting out those beautiful New Orleans style meals, they lived lives very separate and yet their tables were often sometimes the same when it came to the food. They were very talented cooks. What do you know about them? So that's actually been one of the major challenges of adding this interpretation to the Williams residence because most of what we know about the Williams's employees come from the documentation that we have from the Williamses. So we have General Williams's diary, we have different letters and things that have been written, and then also starting in 1953 we have all of the Social Security employment records. So that gives the basic. It gives the name, date of birth, Social Security number, um, an address and what their employees were being paid. So that's how we've been able to track who was working here in the Williams residence. From that, I went through other documents that the Williamses had to find any reference to them. And I also spent a lot of time on Ancestry.com trying to comb through New Orleans city directories, census records, anything I could find um, to document these people. Luckily, I had their social security numbers, so sometimes you can find the social security record for them, but um, it's always more of a challenge to research African-American history, as almost every one of these employees was African-American. Um, and it's even harder to research African-American women history because as names change and records get lost, um, it's hard to trace that. So I don't know 
as much about them as I would like to know. I do know that they were both native Louisianans, um, that they moved around quite often here in New Orleans. They probably didn't own their homes. Both of them uh, were married. Lillian actually got married while she was working for the Williamses. So she started as Lillian Anderson and ended as Lillian Moore. Um, so she got married while she was working here. Um, Bernice Williams was married before she started working for the, for the Williamses. No relation. <laughs> Again, no relation between Lillian Moore and Leela Moore Williams either. It just happens that they have the same names. Lillian and Bernice both became very highly skilled employees of the Williamses. They were uh, the highest paid female employees of the Williamses. So um, by the end of her career, Bernice was being paid the exact same amount as the butler, who was a man. So of course, there's always wage disparity. There's a wage disparity between black and white workers. There's a wage disparity between female and male workers, and especially a wage disparity between African-American female workers and uh, white male workers. So the fact that Bernice was getting paid the same as the butler shows how important she was to the Williams' household. The butler's pantry, located just off the kitchen, continues the mid-century mint green color theme. Built-in cabinets and shelving display a treasure trove of dinnerware, barware, and other serving accessories, looking just as if Lawrence the butler was about to mix up a martini for the general. So um, now we are in the butler's pantry. Um, so it's right adjacent to the kitchen. So food was cooked. Um, prepped in the kitchen and then it would have been plated here in the butler's pantry and then after dinner this is where the dishes were done. So the butler's pantry was the domain of the butler who was Lawrence Jacobs. Uh, Lawrence was born in Opelousas and he started working for the Williamses probably soon after they um, moved to their own home in New Orleans up by Audubon Park in the late 1920s. Um, and he was a highly skilled butler. All of the oral histories from the Williams's friends and family members call him the major dormo. So he ran this, the social aspect of this house. He was also known for making martinis in the way that the general liked them. So we have those on display here in the butler's pantry. The way you make the general's martini is you get a bottle of gin, you pour out what is in the neck, fill that up with vermouth and put it in the fridge and then you have ready to pour martinis. Just as the Williams guests might have, we moved from the dining room into the living room area to hear more about the staff's involvement in the Williams famed dinner parties. So here we are in the Williams's living room, the seat of their formal entertaining. When you were invited to dinner at the Williamses, you showed up at their front door here off of Toulouse Street at 6.30. 6.30 promptly, not before and not after, at 6.30. The general was very strict about the time. So when you came into the door, Ike, the chauffeur, would welcome you. He might take your coat if you had one. And then you would come in here to the living room where Lawrence the butler would offer you usually a pretty strong drink. The living room was filled with family photos and mementos. Prominently displayed on the coffee table was an unusual keepsake that appeared to be a type of ancient iron. 
I asked about its providence. Lawrence Jacobs, who was their butler, um, may have served in Asia during World War II, and he brought these back, um, according to an oral history, he brought these back as a gift for Leela. And Leela Williams always had just them on display on this coffee table. So it does show that there was a very good relationship between the Williamses and their employees. There's obviously a racial line between them and the way that they were treated, but they did have close feelings to them. So Leela always had these on display, and then Lawrence actually named his youngest daughter Leela after Leela Williams. Considering the 80-plus hours a week that the Williams staff regularly put in, I was curious if they had families of their own. Well, um, Lawrence did have a family. Ike was married uh, to Ruth Chapman, and I haven't found any record of children, but Lawrence uh, was married to Norma uh, Jacobs, and they had at least four children, uh, Lawrence Jr. and three daughters. The youngest daughter was named Leela after Leela Williams. One of those daughters has come back in the past and toured the Williams residence. And I wish we had gotten an oral history with her while she was here, but it was before I started working here. We learned from her that the Williamses really helped them when they bought their family home, uh, way, way, way uptown. The Williamses paid for their children to go through school. They bought um, the school uniforms and things for Lawrence's children. So we've gotten stories like that as well. Thank you so much for this incredible behind-the-scenes look at really behind-the-scenes with the household servants of the Williams family. Thank you. You're welcome. And it's always a work in progress. And we are always learning more about the Williamses and about the people who worked for the Williamses. So even if you've toured the Williams residence in the past, yes, it is still the same house, but there's always new information. That was Lydia Blackmore, decorative arts curator at the historic New Orleans collection on Royal Street in New Orleans. Lydia is still actively seeking more information about the Williams staff. If you were related to or knew Ike Chapman, the chauffeur, Lawrence Peter Jacobs or Frank Jacques, the butlers, Lillian Anderson Moore or Bernice Mayfield, the cooks, Beulah Pete, the housemaid, or Lydia Boudreaux, Leela Williams' personal maid, Lydia Blackmore, would love to hear from you. You'll find her email address on our website. While in-person tours of the Williams residence have been temporarily suspended, the HNOC has made a series of short videos that offer a virtual tour of the home. Visit hnoc.org for more details. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. I've got big news about our upcoming monthly Poppy's Pop-Up Drag Brunch, held on the last Sunday of every month at Tujac's Restaurant. This family-friendly event includes three courses, four drag queens, and of course, 
bottomless mimosas. On Sunday, August 28th, we've invited our friends Bo Cialino and Matt Armado to bring their housewarming magic to our drag brunch. They'll be signing books and mixing and mingling, sharing all those at probably this tricks you've learned from them on Instagram. Don't miss the fun. Reservations may be had online and by calling 504-525-8676. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have more than 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. If you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods in wooden cellars, D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily, for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit GulfCoastBlenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris, producer Blake Longlinay, the newest member of our team Kate Gotro, and to our business manager and social media maven Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.